0: This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs. Listen live or support by visiting WCWP.org.
1: Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. Our special guest today, Ms. Julie Millsap, who is the Director of Public Affairs and Advocacy for the International Campaign for Uyghurs, and oppressed people who certainly need our voices and our assistance. Welcome to Seldom Said, Julie.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I wonder if we can begin, as we often do, with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, I am a native of Texas and I spent the last decade of my life actually living in China. Uh, A crazy series of events brought me there and uh, it's where I met my husband and had planned to spend uh, a lot of the rest of my life. And while living there uh, was actually how I became exposed to what was happening to the Uyghur people. And based on things that I witnessed, uh, I got involved in advocacy work and uh, due to a rather tumultuous uh, turn of events. My family and I decided to come back to the United States uh, in February of last year. And since then I've been involved uh, professionally with, with the campaign for Uyghurs and advocating for Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples who are being oppressed by the Chinese regime.
1: I must ask, born in Texas, resided in China, married a Chinese gentleman pursuing issues related to Chinese minorities. Are there moments along the way that you can stockmark your progression from simple citizen to public advocate?
0: Yes, that's a great question, actually. Well, I remember uh, when I first moved to China in 2010, so that was about a year after the Urumqi massacre. And I had a friend that was residing in Urumqi, actually, and lost contact with her. Uh, Later, she was able to touch base and let us know that the Chinese authorities had cut the internet um, and phones were, were even phone lines. So they had a lot of difficulty communicating. And so that was the first moment that it really came onto my radar. Uh, and I I remember since then, just kind of keeping ears on, on the issue. I didn't have a lot of understanding or cultural background, but uh, in 2016 was another big, big moment for me when it really um, came back onto the scene for me uh, in this very glaring and unfortunately quite obvious way. Uh, My husband, who, as I mentioned, is Han Chinese, actually looks Uyghur. His appearance is quite different from the typical Han Chinese. And so, uh, in 2016, we started to notice that we would get stopped quite a bit and harassed by law enforcement uh, based on his appearance and so uh, at one point, we were informed while we were traveling through the airport in Beijing that uh, we should surrender our passports. Uyghurs are not allowed to carry passports. We were stopped by the police. Of course, while they, when they saw my husband's ID card that listed him as Han Chinese, they did let us go and apologize. But it was the first time that I had heard a blatant statement from a, a Chinese official referring to a, a policy based on ethnicity. So knowing nothing about us, he he just openly stated that as Uyghurs, we were not permitted to carry passports without even knowing uh, the reason for our travel or whether or not we'd been given permission or what the situation was. Uh, so this really alerted us to the fact that something uh, else was happening uh, and things were really escalating and deteriorating, if you will. Uh, from that point on, we we did continue to look for information about the atrocities and ask and uh Make inquiries, and from that point on, things just continue to build. But those two moments were really quite enormous for me in terms of realizing the gravity of the situation and what the Uyghur people are facing.
1: There is a that phrase a- that I've often used in this program, Julie: "Je suis un citoyen de la monde," the French phrase which translated uh, implies "I am a citizen of the world." Before we pursue the intricacies of the Uyghur problem. I'm curious as to whether, and I'm sure the audience is as well, whether you consider yourself American, Asian, Chinese, Citoyen de Limon, the citizen of the world. How do you view oneself?
0: That's a really great question. I think one of the most valuable things in my life actually. was having the opportunity to move overseas because before, of course, part of my identity, I would have defined as being American. I would have also probably preferred to call myself a citizen of the world, but I don't think that I knew what that meant until I actually resided in another culture long-term and was confronted with the realities of how certain aspects of your behavior and the way that you view the world are very much shaped by your culture and your country. And when you're placed into a situation where you have, the opposite type of experience of what you grew up with—it uh, really helps you sift through what it actually means to be a citizen of the world. What do we as human beings have in common? What is shaped by our surroundings? Um, so, after residing in, in China for a decade, I—I I really did come to view myself um, almost in in terms of being more, having more of an Eastern mindset. Um, there were certain things that I got used to. There were, of course, certain things that I never got used to, and and I would this would cause conflict in, in my own personality sometimes but uh, I, I very much view myself now as more of a citizen of a world of the world than than ever before because of being able to kind of view the world through different lenses and um, feeling like I do relate a lot uh, with uh, being Chinese to be honest and of course that came into further conflict after' you're, you're confronted with uh, the ways in which currently that identity is being, twisted and shaped by a political power and um, to demand some sort of ideological unity. Uh, and so that, that forced me to confront again, uh, my, what I considered my, my viewpoints and how I was considering myself almost Asian in a way. Uh, what did that mean? It didn't mean maybe what I thought it did. The Uyghurs are also an Asian people. Um, and so there've been so many intricacies about exploring identity since coming back to the United States as well. Um, And just uh, surprised by many of the things that I do miss about Chinese culture um, and many of the things that I appreciate more about American culture. So I suppose, in short, uh, I I very much consider myself a citizen of the world and wouldn't identify myself maybe primarily as American or anything at this point, but rather as as a human being.
1: So pleased to make your acquaintance, madam. (laughs) Same here. If we were to speak of the Uyghur people and speak of their homelands in Jiang province, can you place them historically and geographically so that those who are not aware, and I'm sure that's many, can be enlightened?
0: Yeah, that's a a very important question. You know, I think as we're confronting this crisis, uh, it is quite interesting to see that for, for many people, Um, we're not familiar with who the Uyghurs are, so I appreciate the opportunity to explore that question. Uh, Well, just to throw it out there, first of all, uh, historically, the region is referred to as East Turkestan, and that name itself can give some clues about um, both the geography and the culture of the region, but uh, East Turkestan is the historic name that Uyghurs still prefer to use to this day. Uh, The Chinese authorities refer to the region as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, Uh, The reason that Uyghurs prefer not to use that is not actually directly connected to anything to do with separatism or political belief, but rather because Xinjiang in Mandarin Chinese means new territory, Uh, thus it has a colonialist implication, and so uh, Uyghurs prefer to use the historic name East Turkestan. So as you might guess from that, uh, East Turkestan, the the Uyghur people are a Turkic people, um, and they have had uh, their own uh, country at, at two different points in history, twice, they are a lot closer to, uh, to Turkish culture than they are to typical Han Chinese. Uh, the region itself has a very, very rich history, um, quite diverse geography and many, many, uh, natural resources. So, uh, uh, to the Manchus in, in 1911 and, uh, later in October of 1949, um, the the PLA troops uh, came in and effectively ended the East Turkestan Republic again, and so that's when the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region was established. So there's quite a long history there. There's a lot there, but um, to kind of simplify for our audience, essentially, as we're as you may have uh, gathered from what I just just said about the culture and how distinct it is, this has caused a, a lot of issues since um, since 1949. The Uyghur people have been facing oppression. Uh, since the very uh, establishment uh, of the region, and and since the the um, the colonization by by the Chinese regime, so uh, what we're seeing develop in the last few years is really uh, this extreme deterioration. But in fact, uh, the oppression itself is is not new. Hopefully, that's that's helpful to people. But but all that to say, one thing to keep in mind when you're seeking to understand is that. Uh, the culture is is very, very distinct uh, from that of, of the Han Chinese.
1: We appreciate the description. I would imagine that if we further investigate the Uyghur people, religiosity plays an imperative role in both their lives and in their relationship with an atheistic state. Can you speak to their issue of being devout?
0: Yes. Well, there is a diversity among the Uyghur community. However, most would identify as Muslim. There are also Uyghurs who are atheists, also Uyghurs who are Christian, um, etc., but uh, most would, would identify as being Muslim. So, of course, as you just mentioned, this does put them into a lot of uh, direct conflict with this atheist state uh, in the same way that Christians, Buddhists, uh, really anyone that, that practices their religion does come into conflict with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and it's it's nothing to do with how the CCP has painted it in terms of extremism. Uh, I, I see, I encounter quite a bit of, of racist and ignorant statements on a daily basis concerning Uyghur's practice of Islam. Uh, even people saying, you know, that the Chinese have liberated them from wearing the veil, things like this, but that was not part of Uyghur culture. Uh, that That's actually related to Arab culture, and it, it's not... Um, It's not an accurate reflection of of how Islam is predominantly practiced in the region. But with that, uh, the Chinese Communist Party does consider any practice of religion to be a threat. uh, And this is because of their demand for ideological unity and their their pursuit of having absolute control, not only over people's lives, but indeed their their very thoughts. And so for that reason, we do have to look at it in that light that um, uh, there are several reasons why the genocide of Uyghurs is occurring at present. And the, the religious aspect of it is something that the Communist Party has been able to really latch on to um, in order to kind of spread uh, lies and propaganda about who the Uyghurs are and paint them as dangerous people in order to more uh, conveniently carry out uh, the oppression and, and indeed uh, extermination of this culture and people. Um, but, but yeah, just as I mentioned, we also have to keep in mind that uh, really any sort of dissenting thought and religion falls into that because it threatens the Communist Party's uh, place as God in people's lives, effectively, um, the the CCP does consider threatening.
1: If we were presently sitting about the table, I would describe myself as an American-born citizen. You have your own description for self. How would a Uyghur male or female, man or woman, consider themselves in our presence how would they descriptively describe who and what they are?
0: I think it really varies based on uh, the individual. You know, um, there are many Uyghurs who were content to be part of of, um, working with uh, the Chinese Communist Party, for example. Um, There are many that weren't. There are many that are very devout in their faith. There are many that are not. There are many, there's so much diversity in the community. Um, and, and what really unites them is, is this beautiful culture. But within that, there, there is a, an enormous amount of diversity. Um, contrary to what the Chinese Communist Party has strived to, to paint Uyghurs as, as being this ignorant backwards people, um, which is often how they define people that have any sort of religious faith. Uh, you know, Uyghurs, uh, I believe, are, are, are people that value um, spirituality. They value education. Uh, they value relationships with family and friends. And in, in that regard, I think that most Uyghurs would define themselves as human beings, particularly in light of this genocide. This is how I, I hear many of my colleagues and friends choose to define themselves as you may or may not know who we are. You may or may not have heard of the Uyghurs or know our culture. But uh, before anything, we're just human beings. We're just like everyone else. We have our goals. We have our desires. We have... Um, our, our families, uh, our friendships, um, our careers, and, and we're just human beings.
1: In an audience with Dalai Lama, that same phrase was used. We are children of the spirit. We are human beings. Do you find a unity or a connection with the Tibetan struggle?
0: In a lot of ways, yes. Of course, there are differences. Um, the, the, Level of the atrocities that's happening and the brutalities of what are what's happening to the weaker's right now, of course, is is very distinct in that this is uh, this is active genocide that's being carried out in a new way. However there is a lot of unity between the Uyghur and Tibetan struggles. And and I believe a lot of activists really see that and have chosen to highlight that. And that's very important because we are facing one oppressor. The Tibetan people have been oppressed brutally for decades. Um, And in my viewpoint, the international community has really turned their back on the Tibetans and we've, we've, had all the warning signs of who the CCP is at its core based on watching the Tibetan struggle. And these are not people that the CCP can conveniently paint as Islamic extremists, right? So this has has necessitated on their part, perhaps some different tactics and different propaganda angles. But at the core, it is the same. Um, The the Chinese Communist Party is seeking to completely eliminate um, any dissenting thought or belief. And for that reason, uh, the Uyghurs do feel a lot of solidarity with the Tibetans and their struggle and, um, uh, watching as, as, um, as the Chinese regime has just brutally sought, to, uh, to completely eliminate them as well. And now we see that as they've faced no consequences, this, uh, concentration camps and active genocide have come to the Uyghur people. And now we see also this, uh, this continuation of, okay, the regime is starting to use, um, widespread forced labor schemes, uh, even connected to the camps and moving people from the camps to factories to work. We now see that they are sweeping Tibetans into those schemes as well. And so it's all connected. Um, And as we often say in our organization, this is not just about the Uyghur people. This is about the oppressor that they're facing and how if this, these atrocities are not stopped, um, everyone will be swept up into this. Everyone will face these types of brutalities. And I think that that is uh, very well illustrated in what has happened To the Tibetans um, and continuing on to the Uyghurs.
1: There is a quotation attributed to Martin Luther appearing before a church council in which he said, Here I stand, I can do no other. He had reached an epiphanal moment. It sounds as if, Julie, if I'm reading your emotions and your words effectively and correctly, that you've reached an epiphanal moment in your own philosophy and life. Am I correct?
0: Yes, I, I would certainly say that. I've always uh, considered myself a very inquisitive person, a very um, open person. But I think what what has been a big part of my personal evolution for the last decade of living in China, and I, I should clarify, I've never been a big fan of the Chinese Communist Party. I was often quite frustrated uh, while living in China by things that I observed. Uh, but with that, I've really, I think, turned a corner in, in cementing my own belief that there is a line in the sand. Um, there is a moral bottom line. Uh, and at some point, we do have to be willing to say there are some things that are so incredibly evil um, that they must be confronted. And, and I think that this is where I'm at in my own journey. That's my epiphany for the time being is that um, this is the call on my life right now is is to be part of of stopping what I know to be Um, the most dangerous and harmful uh, thing that I see occurring in the world right now.
1: This has been a marvelous segment, and we're about to go into our first break. We'll return with a discussion of the Uyghur situation, the Uyghur tragedy, with Ms. Julie Millsap. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. Back in a
0: moment. is Seldom Said with Robert Amato.
1: Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Our special guest, our very lucid and correct guest speaking to an integral issue is Ms. Julie Millsap, the Director of Public Affairs and Advocacy at the Campaign for Weakers. I wonder, Julie, if we could return with a description of how you got involved in an organization
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, upon returning to the United States, moving back from China uh, uh, about a year ago, <laughs> um, I actually had followed Campaign for Uyghurs while in China. I was—it's very hard to access information, but uh, using a VPN, we were watching which organizations were advocating on these issues, and it's an important part for us in being encouraged to continue um, confronting the atrocities. So I was very excited when I returned to the United States to hear that they were looking for. Um, people to assist with their campaigns. And so I volunteered to get in, involved and then uh, was offered a position. And it's been my honor and privilege to be working with uh, wonderful people like uh, Rushana Abbas, who I've admired for so long. Um, it's really, um, I think, my my duty <laughs> to be involved in, in, in a cause like this. And it's been my great honor.
1: Would you give the audience a, a pricey, a description of Rushana Abbas? Extraordinary personality.
0: Yes, she is indeed. Uh, she has been a really vocal activist for Uyghur human rights, uh, really since her youth. Uh, many people may may not know, but she was involved in the pro-democracy protests at Xinjiang University, which preceded the Tiananmen Square um, protests. And she she came to the United States in 1989 and since then has been actively involved in advocating for Uyghur human rights. And her personal story is quite um incredible and, and convicting in that uh, she really was, was living um, a a typical American life while continuing to do this advocacy work until uh, things really started to escalate. And she, she watched her husband's entire family disappear into the camps. Um, And so she, she founded Campaign for Uyghurs in 2017 in response to, to more efficiently advocate on these issues. And shortly after that, uh, when she spoke out publicly on, on a, a panel with the Hudson Institute, actually, in 2018. Uh, Just six days later, her own sister was abducted uh, same day as her aunt from two separate cities. Uh, And this is very clearly in retaliation for her advocacy and I think is quite telling in terms of her efficiency as an advocate. She's always been the person that has said what needs to be said um, without worrying about being politically correct or um, anything like that. So I have a lot of admiration for her messaging and how bold it has been consistently. She's been one of the most vocal people on pushing for this genocide determination and, and using that language and awakening the world to the realities of what has been happening. So it's, it's been my absolute privilege to learn from her and, and to work with her.
1: It's always amazed me how that there are some in the world who can balance the reality of a circumstance with the difficulties it will bring to their lives. How do you weigh that yourself? She's lost members of her family and yet still espousing what is a noble moral cause. You've described yourself to me in conversation as a realist. Can you expand on
0: that? Sure, certainly. Well, I think, you know, these are very difficult things to weigh, and I think everyone does have to make a personal decision. I would never judge, for example, many of the Uyghur individuals that are having to make these difficult decisions of, if I speak out, I may condemn my family members. If I don't speak out, they may be condemned anyway. Uh, it's it's an incredibly difficult situation that nobody should be put into, Um I, I think where I've landed on the issue and where many others are beginning to to kind of realize uh, that, that really our only option is to speak out is because even for those who were silent, even for those who were uh, loyal Communist Party members, uh, they also have been swept up in this genocide. And so silence doesn't protect anyone. It just allows the oppressor to continue. Um, and, and we really need for truth to confront what is happening. And so for me personally, I don't think there was another choice. It's, it's perhaps my personality, but looking at things realistically, um, it's not something I can, I can tolerate as being, being silent on these things. I know that many people are forced to do so. And I felt that I had the platform, um, to be able to speak out. And so I, I chose to do that. And I think, um, Uh, I've had an incredible example in a lot of the people that I work with who have faced enormous personal loss and consequence, but we have to keep at the center of this, uh, the truth that uh, these things did not happen because of them. These things happened because of uh, the CCP and their decision to retaliate against innocent civilians and to engage in this type of activity. And that is very difficult for people to keep in mind. I think a lot of activists struggle with personal guilt understandably so. Uh, The mental torment of what they're undergoing uh, at the hands of the CCP is just devastating. But we need to remember that they're in this position because of the CCP. We're not in this position because of anything that we did. And so uh, in the end, I think the only option is to speak out. For, For myself, I do worry about my husband's family back in China every day. We do expect that they may face consequences. And it's very, very heartbreaking to make a decision. Um, knowing that because you make a personal decision to advocate on something, someone else who's completely innocent and not involved in the situation may face consequences. But we're all in this together. We're all in the same boat. And so I think that this point in time demands uh, this type of response from us.
1: The PRC contends that it's a socialist state, and yet it projects its power through mercantile authorities and financing A graduate scholar asked me once if I felt that this was a capitalist problem. I responded by describing some of the things that are presented in the People's Republic of China's itinerary. One of these is the Belt and Road Initiative. There are many in this country who are not aware of what that is and what it poses for the future. Can you give a short description of it as a policy?
0: Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, a simple way of putting it would be that the BRI is China's new Silk Road, and so uh, through the different investment product uh, projects that are connected with that, both uh, on land and, and maritime investments, uh, this is a, a means of uh, theoretically. Uh, the 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 mindset behind it is is uniting these countries, making. Um, making things uh, <laughs> simpler, but in reality, this is a way for the CCP to extend control and the way that it's played out it has been in large part through debt trap diplomacy. We'll see that these um, countries are targeted with these investment pro- projects and then a lot of times can't pay back the debts um, and they lose control of ports, et cetera. And so um, it's it's quite a, an interesting issue, definitely something to look into, but uh, it's it's very dangerous. We see that the countries that are heavily involved in the BRI, are effectively rendered silenced on human rights issues uh, through debt trap diplomacy and and, um, Chinese money. And so this is an enormous concern for us as an organization. It's something that our messaging continues to highlight is the reality of what the BRI is um, and why this is not beneficial um, and, and with that, too, I would throw in here that, unfortunately, we, we see that even here in the United States, there are a lot of people that are willing to kind of push Chinese propaganda regarding um, the pros of the BRI and how wonderful the BRI is uh, for the world and the international community. Um, and, and we always seek to highlight to people the BRI is actually behind some of the, the most enormous human rights abuses, including the Uyghur genocide, but also uh, the Rohingyas as well. Um, Clearing land for BRI projects was one of the primary motivations for those atrocities. And so uh, we we need to be very cautious here as well that when when we're looking at things even like sister city relationships, which is supposed to be an opportunity for exchange um, and seemingly an innocent thing. Chinese state media has said this is a key means of pushing forward the BRI. So they do not view this as a cultural exchange or an opportunity to learn. They, they view this as a platform where they can push forward these, these economic projects um, and at, at enormous costs, unfortunately, in terms of human rights. So uh, these are all things we, we would encourage people to, to read more about and monitor quite closely.
1: Sometimes looking at a foreign difficulty is comparable to looking at a painting and being colorblind. In point of fact, how does your organization access information from behind this bamboo curtain, so to speak? And in point of fact, can you share some of the stories you've heard without endangering anyone along the way, but at least to paint that picture in full color for the listening audience?
0: Sure, absolutely. Well, accessing information is is difficult, but doable. So uh, one thing to highlight for everyone is that when we see a lot of reporting and increased media attention happening at present, what we need to remember is a lot of the information that they're sharing right now is a few years old. Um, these things have already been happening for several years now and have escalated uh, to a more horrific point, even than what is being shown in the media. But some some Ways that we access information. Of course, there are brave individuals in the country who do leak out um, documents at, at enormous risk. Some of the initial uh, groundbreaking uh, news reports that were done on the issue were because of individuals who put themselves uh, at that risk and, and leaked documents out—Chinese government documents that confirmed what was happening. Of course, there's satellite imagery that that's been obtained, and things do get out on social media sometimes through uh, coded messaging or if someone um, manages to kind of get out these subtle messages. A lot of it has come directly from the CCP itself. They do call uh, dissidents abroad and Uyghurs uh, abroad and threaten them. Um, they'll they'll uh, send videos with their family. Uh, they'll, they'll sometimes have them record coerced statements. So we do get information that way as well. We have people that contact us back in the country, um, oftentimes actually foreign citizens in China will sometimes contact us with information about Uyghur friends who have disappeared or concerns or things that they have observed. Um, we do get a lot of information from people who have managed to escape, um, people who have, have experienced the camps firsthand. Uh, initially, a few years ago, there were people that managed to get out. most, And these were all people who either held foreign passports or their spouse did. And so a lot of the eyewitness information that we have regarding the camps comes from them. There are quite a few victims that are residing uh, in other countries. Uh, in Turkey, have come as refugees, and we do even have some camp survivors here in the United States. So their testimonies, of course, have have really just confirmed what we knew what was happening, but but really been able to give us in great detail um, how a lot of things play out and just the the depth of the horrors in terms of what what's being done to human beings. It's really unlike anything that. Has been seen since the, the holocaust unfortunately i don't say that lightly or to make a comparison but because we're desperately trying to prevent the worst mistakes in history from happening again but unfortunately based on what we're seeing is that they are uh, repeating so um and then of course we also do get news confirmed usually long after the fact unfortunately but that people are dying and so that's something that's not been highlighted in the news a whole lot, but uh, people do receive word that their relatives have died while in detention. And so um, there all that to say, there are many means of obtaining information. There is open source documentation, which is how a lot of scholars have managed to to really um, do some in-depth research on, on things like forced labor schemes. Um, so there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of ways of doing it, but it's, it's slow and it's painstaking and um the, the Great Firewall, as it's referred to, is, is a big obstacle in terms of not only getting information out, but making people in the country aware of what is happening as well.
1: To ask you to repeat the statement once again, uh, to use it without question, I've done any number of Holocaust survivors as interviewees on this program. Are you stating and stipulating for, again, that listening audience and for anyone hearing that what we are experiencing in the 21st century is the elimination of the essence of a race of people.
0: Yes, that is what I'm stating. We're we're desperately hoping that uh, the international community will um, fulfill its mandate of never again, but we see that they're failing at this point in time. Uh, We are desperately hoping that we can have some sort of impact and result that will mean that we don't have a repeat of the Holocaust, but what what we're seeing right now is that the intention is is um, quite quite similar, and even the same types of dehumanization and propaganda tactics that were initially employed by the Nazis. Um, we see repeating, we've actually had Chinese officials make statements publicly even as early as um, you know ten fifteen years ago talking about how they have studied the mistakes that led to Nazi Germany losing. Um, quite jarring uh, when you put all this together and realize that um, the the dehumanizing language that's being used publicly and without consequence by these Chinese state actors is quite comparable. It is incredibly, incredibly jarring. For that reason, we are so thankful. We've had so many wonderful allies in the Jewish community who have stood up um, to advocate on this issue and and really um, said quite unequivocally that This is not about religion. We are all members of the human race. We all have a responsibility to ensure that this does not happen again. We said never again. We have to mean it, and we're very appreciative of that.
1: One would argue that cultural identity should be a basic human right, and yet uh, the PRC does proclaim itself as a nation with a number of autonomous regions Do you feel that enough has been done at organizations like the United Nations, the International World Court, to proclaim cultural identity and religious belief as basic rights of human existence?
0: I do feel there's been a lot of willingness to proclaim those things. Unfortunately, when we see that a a state actor is denying people those rights of cultural identity, then there's not a follow-through with action to hold those actors accountable is the issue. Um, our viewpoint of the UN very much is that they have all the right statements, but when it comes to actually holding China accountable, they don't. Um, China is sitting on the Human Rights Council. That's absolutely preposterous. And so uh, the UN is rendered largely ineffective to address these things. Because of that, we're letting uh, the criminal judge's own trial effectively um, so I do think that, you know, there've been a lot of great statements on how people have a right to their culture and identity, but, but no follow through to ensure that those rights are protected. And we see now too, uh, you know, we mentioned the Tibetans, we mentioned the Uyghurs, and now we see it, um, happening with the Mongolians as well. And really, um, uh, there's, there's absolutely no, um, Similar propaganda narrative that can be used by the Chinese state regarding the Mongolians, and yet uh, the same things are happening as as they're happening to the Uyghurs. They're being denied their their rights to language and their cultural identity, and still um, the international community is slow to respond. So we, we need more concrete action.
1: There are many who will always take the position that there is a pragmatic solution, and we're going to have to pursue that when we return our guest has been Julie Millsop, the campaign for Uyghurs. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Be back in a moment.
0: This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato.
1: Welcome back. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. The key to a good program is when it seems to go back and bias so quickly that we wonder where the time went, and this is such a program about a really relevant issue. Julie Millsap is our guest, the Director of Public Affairs and Advocacy at the Campaign for Uyghurs. Julie, how would you react to those who say we must be pragmatic? This argument has been used with Saudi Arabia, with various autocracies throughout the world, that we must assume our position, avoid violence, and in some point of fact, find middle ground. What is your response?
0: I find it incredibly naive as concerns the People's Republic of China. Ideally, yes, we would love to be able to to say that pragmatism is the way to go. But unfortunately, when you have a state actor that is not committed to the same ideals as we are, or even pragmatism for that matter, um, it's just completely naive. I think that uh, a lot of our viewpoint on on China here in the West is shaped by our own cultural perceptions by our own political system. And we make uh, assumptions, uh, on, on what China is at present, uh, based on this kind of naive ideal of what we would hope it to be. And so if you're truly being pragmatic, my argument would be, I suppose that, um, you need to look at what China actually is today, not what you hoped it would be. This is the mistake that has been made for decades now is hoping that China would reform. And what we've actually observed is that, um, we have made a lot of concessions uh, in the West and China has not reformed um, and rather it's been allowed to continue to get away uh, with more and more and more as we've empowered it economically uh, and grown it into the superpower that has no moral bottom line. And so pragmatically, we need to look at that. We need to say. Uh, it doesn't matter if uh, if we can continue to pursue an economic relationship or not. Eventually, that will become, in and of itself, not pragmatic because we have a state actor that is so uh, unpredictable and determined to bully and um, control the rest of the world. So I find that uh, that people that use that argument um, uh, one one of two things: either have a, an incredibly naive view of China. <laughs> Or, or to uh, stand to economically benefit and don't want to inconvenience themselves in the short term to address the, the human rights atrocities. So I do not have a favorable viewpoint of, of, of using that excuse.
1: I've often encountered people who argue that there is a book in everyone's life. Can you, in point of fact, say whether there is a story in your own life that you can use
0: Mm, that I could use to to illustrate my uh, relation to the issue, or
1: relation to the issue, and a description of what is, in point of fact, happening in the world, especially in Xinjiang province. Is there a book mm. in your tomorrow?
0: Mm. That's a very good question. I think uh, if I were to to answer quite literally, um, and I won't even say a title, but uh, I will say that. My entire uh, path to this point has been greatly influenced by history, uh, and I hope that people take the perspective of history when looking at the future and what what the next um, chapter will be as well. I think for me, that's how I would define my own uh, life book and, and, and things. Um, I was very privileged, I would say, um, as, as a youth to have the opportunity to study a Holocaust history that made an enormous impact on me. Um, and, and being able to kind of look through not just what happened, but why it happened and how, uh, the, these aspects of, of the worst parts of human nature repeat, uh, was incredibly valuable for me. And so when I'm looking at the present and imagining what the next chapter will be, um, in the future, it does give me an element of hope. It's very hard to say that sometimes. And I, I know I describe myself as a realist, um, but, but we all do need to have some sort of, of um, end point in mind and next chapter to look forward to in order to be able to keep going. And I think the thing that has given me hope is being able to look back on history and seeing that um, for those tyrants and those who really uh, stand for such evil, there always comes an end. There always comes uh, this point of, of fall or justice. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I'm looking at what what my own next chapter will be, I think that's that's what I want it to be is... is um, justice. So that was a somewhat interesting way to answer perhaps, but uh, I, I think that's that's how I would view it.
1: In the Bible, St. Paul is asked about justice and his response, brother, what would you have me do? What would you have the world do? What would you have a listening audience do to bring light to this atrocity and to move in a corrective measure to change it?
0: That's a wonderful question. I think uh, the one thing I would ask people initially uh, is to recognize your own connection to the issue um, and your own complicity. You know, something I didn't touch on yet a whole lot is that this isn't just something that's happening to people far away in China. This isn't just a foreign policy issue. This is something that we actually are actively complicit in, uh, even here in the United States, in the West, uh, outside of China by the products that we purchase that are tainted by Uyghur forced labor. Um, This is something that we are all, unfortunately, connected to. We don't live in a world now where we can say that uh, we have no part in this or we should focus on what's happening in our own borders and just let China deal with their issues. No, we are also, this is also our issue. Um, And so I I think using that, the narrative of of borders to kind of separate issues or prioritize is is quite... um, Uh, unrealistic at this point in time. We can't say, even as we're having these conversations about racial justice in our own country and dealing with our own um, stains on history, we can't say that we're just going to focus on that and outsource human rights abuses. No, it's all connected. In order for us to be able um, to pursue improvement as a society, we have to address all the ways in which these issues are interconnected. And so I would just encourage the audience, please look at that. And please view this not as something happening to a people that you've never heard of, but as something you are connected to. These people are making the Nike shoes that you wear, bottling the Cokes that you drink, um, picking the cotton that makes up one in five cotton garments worldwide. Um, This is our issue. And so I would just beg the audience, please raise your voices to your government authorities and to these corporations that are profiting off of modern day slavery to say that I want no part of this.
1: strange you would speak to this issue. It's almost as if I'm a younger man hearing the same. Dr. King often told us about this idea of complicity and made us aware of the fact that guilt can be universal and we're all into it up to our necks. There's a great phrase uh, he often used. Jesus gave him the message and Gandhi gave him the method. Mm. Do you feel that nonviolence is possible in a scenario so atrocious?
0: We have to believe that. Um, I think one of the things that's been most awe-inspiring to me as I watch Uyghur activists who've been undergoing such brutal treatment for decades, and same with the Tibetans, is um, how they've managed to continue to engage in the issues without violence. Um, it's really a miracle if, if, you, if you look at it, that people are not forced um, to take more drastic measures. I mean, um, anger is such a powerful, strong emotion, and it's very hard to um, To channel that in an appropriate way. So I do find it awe inspiring that people continue to engage in nonviolence, and we have to believe that that's the way forward. Otherwise, there's no difference um, between uh, the ones doing the violence, uh, you know, and it, it delegitimizes us. And so Seeing the commitment to that is very important. We continue to hope for a resolution that can come through other means. It's why uh, economic um, pressure is so important. No one is calling for war with China. No one desires war. War is an awful, horrible, horrible thing. It's not a joke. Um, And so uh, we absolutely have to continue to, to say that. Um, we're going to have the integrity to call on people to, to force China to do the right thing uh, without, without advocating for those methods. The ball may be in China's court. In that regard, we hear China continue to threaten its neighbors um, and, and and possibly move in that direction. And I think that it's realistic for on a government level for us to be prepared for that. But as activists, we continue just to call for recognition of human rights and democratic freedoms as the solution.
1: Purpose of argument, I am a citizen of the West. I'm looking at the Nike shoes I wear, the coat that is made from cotton that has been sold to me from a PRC distributorship. I've been intimated as being complicit in what is essentially a satanic kind of arrangement and sociopathy
0: what can I do as an individual? Great question. You know, once you recognize that, as we, as we put it, collective guilt, it's important to move forward, you know. And so, what we ask people do is you can join up with these organizations that have these wider campaigns going on. Your individual voice matters, and but we need to join it together in order for it to be effective. And so, let those corporations know that you don't want any part of those products. They have to hear you. It's not enough to just don't buy the product. You need to let them know why you won't be buying the products. There's a lot of initiatives you can follow. Uh, For example, the the Coalition to End Uyghur Forced Labor is engaging actively with these corporations to give them options of how to extricate themselves from these these, um, supply chains that are tainted with with this modern-day slavery um, and they're arranging these uh, consumer boycotts to join people together on social media and, and contacting these corporations to let them know um, this is not acceptable to me as a consumer. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, continuing to raise your voice to your legislators to let them know you support legislation like the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Um, is very, very important Um, to also hold our governments accountable, to to let them know that we expect them to take tangible action to address this. It's very, very important.
1: For that same listener, can you describe how they might be in contact with your organization?
0: Absolutely. You can go to our website, which is www.campaignforweavers.org. Uh, There you can also find links to our social media. We have Instagram, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Facebook. We're active on all these platforms, and we share a lot of up-to-date information and calls to action, ways to be involved um, via those social media channels. And so we would love for you to to follow our organization and to to be part of, of a solution.
1: What might be your personal plans for the future, Julie?
0: Oh, it's so hard to say. For the time being, I, I I'm very focused on on ending uh, this genocide. That's all that's in my head. That's all that I can think about. Uh, beyond that, we would hope that in years to come there will be further action to improve uh, human rights for for people in China as a whole. It is very much our desire to see that um, this enormous threat to humanity is is eliminated, and that and that people. Globally, also within China, can, can live with um, the freedom and, and human dignity that they deserve. So, in terms of long term, I think that's my personal goal. The weaker issue is the most pressing, and beyond that, um, it's really tied into to human rights that I care about uh, for everyone.
1: You speak a literate phrase, Julie. I must say that. And that's meant uh, with the ult- utmost compliment. Is there a newsletter or a series of articles that the organization is considering putting out that can be made available?
0: We, uh, we do have an email list right now, and we are looking at uh, hopefully continuing to expand our messaging. So for those who are interested, uh, you can sign up on our website for our uh, email list, and that's where press releases and updated uh, pieces, articles will be sent. Um, we do publish quite a bit uh, through the website and through other uh, avenues as well, but we would we would certainly hope to look at putting together more of a newsletter and increasing the magnitude of what we put out in the future.
1: Are you planning any travels that would bring your message to libraries, student groups?
0: Yes, we are very open to traveling to different campuses, grassroots organizations, uh, even. Uh, foreign countries uh, to brief these different groups, as well as government officials. We're always looking for those opportunities. Uh, we're very excited that as the vaccine um, has come and, and we're we're closer to uh, achieving the ability to travel again, we're very much looking forward to that. It's a very important aspect of our work, yes.
1: Interesting that you would mention the vaccine. Has there been any evidence relevant to what is happening in regard to the pandemic in Xinjiang?
0: Uh, yes, this added a, a very disturbing layer uh, to the human rights abuses. What we were receiving information about was that in addition to everything else that was happening uh, at the height of the pandemic, when most people in China were sheltering at home and businesses had shut down, that the uh, Chinese authorities were moving Uyghurs into factories all across China to boost the economy without concern or consideration for their safety. Uh, additionally, following that, we we did um, see reports of of how vaccines and unknown medications were being tested on Uyghurs, uh, treated like human guinea pigs, essentially. Um, and, the, and this uh, the pandemic itself has just added this enormous layer of concern to people who are already devastated not knowing the whereabouts about their family when they imagine them in detention centers or factory environment where COVID can spread quite easily, and especially in light even now that China has a vaccine that it's not particularly efficient um, this continues just to add another layer to the to the hell that, that Uyghur families are going through.
1: There have always been movements to afford an opportunity for dissidents and their families to escape. I did do uh, an interview in front of a group of students in regard to the Tenement Square Massacre with individuals who were present there and did leave. Is there, without going into detail, of course, Is there an effort to bring people out?
0: We don't have a lot that we're able to do in that regard. It is very, very difficult for people to get out. Um, Their passports have all been confiscated. Uh, Initially, there were some people getting out, as I mentioned, because they held foreign citizenship or had a spouse who did. Um, So that tends to be the the people that managed to get out. Um, for the few that manage to bribe someone or get out and make it to another country, they're also put in these very dire circumstances. A lot of times they can be repatriated depending on where they end up, uh, where they would most certainly face enormous consequence and possible death. So uh, we, we do what we can to help refugees. Uh, we have a lot of initiatives supporting refugees in Turkey. There's a large refugee population there. Um but it's, and it, we are very supportive of, of examining uh, assigning Uyghurs P2 status here in the United States to help with asylum cases. Um, but unfortunately, the reality remains that um, for most people, this is not going to be uh, an opportunity for them. And that's why addressing stopping the genocide is our first priority. And along with that, we also need to support those who have managed to escape.
1: You mentioned the term refugee. Obviously, uh, the United States itself is going through a... Uh, incredible set of circumstances in regard to the refugee issue. Do you feel that the format for dealing with problems, even problems as atrocious as this one, deserve to be totally reconsidered? That mankind in general, and this may sound incredibly naive, has to in some way realize the brotherhood rather than the fact that people are refugees and new and different.
0: Yes, that's a beautiful way of putting it, I think so. Um, there's still very much this uh, viewpoint of, of treating people as other when we assign them that category. Um, I've always had the viewpoint that being a refugee, it really is a sign of strength. These are people who we have so much to learn from. Um, and I hope that more and more people will continue to look at as they examine these crises that are happening in the world, whether it's the Uyghurs or others, for that matter. Um, what actually creates this type of situation where someone has to be labeled a refugee? Um, it's not because they're the other or they're dangerous. It's because they have more in common with us than we could ever realize. In that they're they're um, desiring the very simple um, human rights that they deserve to live in peace with their families and in safety. And so I do agree with that. I, I think that the whole world needs to, to um, reframe the w- way that they view the issue.
1: That unfortunately has to be the last question and the last response. Julie, I would hope that you would be willing to return and we can do this again.
0: Absolutely, I'd be delighted.
1: It is indeed our pleasure. Our guest has been Julie Millsap Executive Director of Public Affairs for Uyghurs. My name is Robert. The program is seldom said. Be with us again next time.